Next week, next week is the 23rd. So for the 23rd and the 30th, and unfortunately the 30th, you know, some of you won't be here, but uh, Jacob Ives and Michael Caprera are going to have a study on, um, I believe it's based on astronomy. You know, God's, so, so take a look at creation in the cosmos, so to speak. Um, which will be interesting for sure. So, and to have those young men, you know, bring their their energy and their hopefully their fresh look and, and uh, some good insights uh, should be very interesting. And I know again, some of you won't be here for the second week, but um, your losses are gain. So, but you'll be in a good place anyway because you'll be at impact, right? Most of the ones who won't be here, you going to impact. You two are going to impact, right? You two are going to impact. You go, you're not going to impact. No, he's going to impact. That's very sensible and good to hear. <laughs> um, Gary will be an impact. So we'll, still, we'll have a good crew. We'll have a good crew. <coughs> and then uh, after that, there might be a parable or two left, and then we'll move into something else. I'm just not sure what that is yet. I have some thoughts. Um, so, yeah. So, uh, here we are in Luke chapter 14. We're talking about the parable of the Great Bank. Let's just read it just so we're fresh. Yes, I did. Thank you. I'll make sure. Yes, I did. Sometimes you think you do when you didn't. Samwise. Samwise Gamgee is among us. Good morning, brother. And there's Ben. Is there a little Ben, too? Which one of these is a little Ben? It's all right, Sam. Say hi to people, brother. You know, you know. It's the price of popularity. It's the price of being loved. Oh, that's okay. We're a little. We'll be crushed, but we'll be okay. All right, so we are. Uh, so we're in the second week of a study in the parable of the great banquet because we've been going through the parable of Jesus, and in Luke chapter twelve, I'm sorry, Luke chapter fourteen, verses twelve through twenty-four, and uh, we'll read through that. He also said to the man who had invited him, "Have you, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid." But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed, because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. And when one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets in the lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done and there is still room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who are invited shall taste my banquet. So we took a look last week at 
where Jesus' mindset likely came from as he developed this parable. And as I suggested then, and would continue to insist that Jesus gave a lot of thought, meditation, and reflection upon the Old Testament. And that's where he came up with his ideas for parables. Um, again, because I think we'd like to think that because Jesus was Jesus and we ascribe things to him that we shouldn't at times or wrongly understand in some ways, that he didn't just sort of make up that parable out of whole cloth when all of a sudden there was an opportunity for it. I believe a lot of Jesus' teachings and parables came from a lot of reflection on the Scriptures. And we know and we studied, we took a look, a brief look in Isaiah at the um, couple of passages in Isaiah that spoke about the great messianic banquet that was anticipated at the end of time by the Jews. And that Jesus used, I mean, Jesus was obviously, as was Paul after him, um, entirely seeped in Old Testament theology. Um, that's a good side point to remember too. You may hear people talk about Paul as if somehow Paul had to adapt his message for the Hellenistic or the so-called Greek and uh, also Roman audience to whom he spoke that were not Jews, but uh, he didn't. He didn't adjust his message at all. Uh, Paul was entirely immersed in Old Testament theology and it informed everything that he said and did. So even if in some places he had to sort of make it understandable in a, in a certain cultural context, more often than not, it, it is assumed by what we're reading in the text, it must be assumed that people became familiar with the Old Testament Scriptures, no matter where Paul went. Um, <clears throat> so, we've got this wonderful parable again about the grace of God and how grace functions in unexpected ways, which we will see this week, and also features the hardening of mankind. And I think we want to continue to have certain words about this parable in our mind as we go through it, and that is invitation, uh, refusal, and, and banquet. You know, what those three things mean. And what this parable means in the context of, you know, the, G- Jesus is sitting, he's in a house of the leader of the Pharisees. And so you know that they're going to be surrounded by other Pharisees. And Jesus is making this parable. And the, the one Pharisee, the one guest there said, you know, blessed is every man who eats bread in the kingdom of God. And then Jesus goes on to say, something about that. And that's very important because anything that we see preceding a parable that Jesus says tells us something about the point that he's going to be making in the parable. And what was the significance? We talked a little bit last week, but what was it that prompted Jesus after this man said, blessed everyone, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Jesus said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. What, what's the significance of that? We touched on this a little last week. Why did Jesus find it necessary? Why, why was what that man said How was that the stimulus, so to speak, for this parable? How did that provoke Jesus to give the parable at this point in time? If we recall that. Blow blow away the dust and the cobwebs from the mind from the week. There seemed to be some privilege or Mm -hmm. almost arrogance Mm -hmm. in his view of that banquet. People that were going to attend. Mm -hmm. Um, Special, well-favored people were Mm going to be there. Yeah, you get to remember that the Jews thought they were special just by virtue, and they were in a sense, but they thought of themselves as exclusively special just by virtue of having received the law, really. I mean, you know, if you go through the Old Testament understanding of things, and you, uh, you look at Mount Sinai and the giving of the law, and how in that way God, in a certain sense, sort of betrothed the people to himself, but they began to think of themselves as special just by virtue of having the law, okay? Just by the fact that they had the law as opposed to those that didn't. And how, and how they t- then took that law and, and turned it into something that it wasn't. And I think there's a, there's a whole 
universe of understanding and Jesus at this point deciding to say that when this man said this because I think that there are underlying assumptions that that man has um, and he probably wouldn't have thought of himself as arrogant and others would not have thought of himself as arrogant they just sort of assumed they were going to be there and why else would Jesus go into a narrative about who is and who isn't going to be there and about who turned down the invitation and why so so the invitation is given and again recall that once the assumption also is the invitation has been accepted. Okay, you have to understand how this thing worked. And it was only after the invitation had been accepted and the meal was everything was planned and all was put together and the summons was come, the meal the meal was prepared that we get these three pathetic excuses, you know, for why these people cannot come and attend. Um you know, we discussed the uh, one man that said that, that he had bought some um, he had bought some land. Okay, he said I bought a field and I must go out and see it. We talked about the length of time it takes for that to happen. That's a really lame excuse. Okay, that would be like I think we compared it to you know Seth accepting invitation to dinner last week, and then on the day of the meal he says, "Oh, geez, I'm sorry, I'm in the process of buying a car, you know, and I can't make it." This is a real insult. And uh, we saw the next person said, I, I bought five yoke of oxen. i got to go try them out. Well, maybe that's when we use the car thing. But in any case, a good businessman, a good agricultural man at that point would have looked at the yoke of oxen well ahead of time to make sure that indeed the five yoked oxen, the five, so probably ten oxen, right, were actually equally yoked, that they were able to work well together, and he would have discovered all of these things. Um, I imagine if you were to ever sell your orchard or something, right, brother? Uh, the person that would come to look at your orchard would spend a lot of time walking around that. They wouldn't just sort of take your word that, oh, yes, things are peachy. <laughs> and, you know, the apples are growing, the peaches are growing. Everything's been great. It's been a great orchard, no problem. I mean, you would, you, it's a process. So this, this too, was offensively insulting and deliberately insulting to the guest. Uh, and then the third guy didn't even, so the first two at least said, you know, please make an excuse for me. Okay, and again we discussed somehow we seem to think that the excuses we make as people although they may for whatever reason um, mitigate whatever sense of guilt we may feel for not doing something we offer some, some excuse and it's sufficient enough to excuse ourselves in our mind but we also project that onto God thinking my excuses will also be pleasing to God that God will see you know after all he has a pretty good point he does have a lot to do or you know, yeah, those those are some uh, important reasons. I mean, yeah, it's just crazy, Mark. I, I just uh, was reminded that uh, last week you made the point that it appears as though these were coordinated among the three who yes. the excuses. Yes. So it was a. Uh, it wasn't just an individual uh, right. excuse uh, mm-hmm. in a small sense. It was a larger uh, uh, effort to. It was, and, and and I think we also looked at the King James version. How that really sort of brought that out, right? They they all with one consent, right? Was that the word, brother? Uh, whoever's got, I think Gary. They all with one consent. Uh, and that is not at all inconsistent with what we know about the Pharisees and how they they uh, they they got together and, um, and and colluded against Jesus on a number of occasions, right? They worked together against Jesus on a number of, oca- of occasions. They often sought, how can we put him to death? How can we trip him up in his words? So, Jesus, again, is masterfully exposing just sort of who these people are. And yet, there he is having dinner with them. So, you, again, I think that's one of the ways that we see 
a manifestation of grace here that will come in a very unexpected way. You know, right in the midst of these people. And yet he's going to give them a parable that they ought to understand because they are themselves in uh, Old Testament learned and schooled. And yet they can't see certain things. We'll talk about that in particular this week. And yet they don't see those things. And I just wonder sometimes if when Jesus told parables, even though, as we've said before, they were the purpose was both to conceal and to reveal things, if at times even those people that would harden themselves against Jesus, a parable might be just subtle enough to help break down the wall that they've built so that they can see the point that Scripture is making. So I think parables are a mercy in that way as well. I just wonder if that's not the case. Um, we, we see that that worked with David, right? When Nathan had to approach David about his, uh, his adulterous, murderous plan. And, and um, yes? I met a man yesterday. Uh, is this a parable? Uh, actually, it is, because it's a big story. Cool. Okay. Uh, I met a man yesterday while we were doing evangelism, and he said that he was Catholic. Uh-huh. But he uh, did not believe in Satan. And he said, I believe that Satan is a parable, not a truism. Mm. And it was, uh, we had a little bit of a back and forth, and, uh, you know, not, not an argument, but in, in conversation. And, you know, I said, I'd love to get together with you and talk to you further on it. But uh, I couldn't believe it. He said, Satan is a parable. It's God uses things like that to um, give us a better understanding mm. of evil. And it was... It, well, that's just goes to show you the subtlety, you know? He's a practicing Roman Catholic. Yeah. Well, yeah but, he, but he didn't even believe in what the Catholics teach because the Catholics teach that uh, Satan does exist and yeah. that hell exists. Well, I, you know, if the church were to find that out and correct him, if he weren't willing to accede to that, then they ought to excommunicate him. You know, if Roman Catholicism was going to be true to its cause, they would ask, why go to, why go to Roman Catholic baptisms when, when, and ask the godparents if they reject the works of the devil and all those things that they ask, you know? So, yeah, he's... But he's like a lot of Roman Catholics are really lousy Roman Catholics. And he said he's an Assyrian sect. Uh-huh. And the Assyrians... I don't want to belabor this, but he's yeah. an Assyrian sect. And the Assyrian sect that he belongs to extends itself all the way back to and including the apostles and that they uh, members of his family were disciples well hey good for him man so he's not only way way back he's way out <laughs> he, he, you know he'll encounter those things that's the best he can do I would have said I know the devil is really and how I know that and the guy would have said how I said because I'm speaking to him <laughs> but that's me <laughs> but that's me <laughs> so anyway um these these excuses, as we see, have probably come about as as a means of collusion, and they're just poor excuses not to. Now we get into this verse twenty one here, and this is a bit surprising to me. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, "Go quickly into the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame." Mm. What does that surprise anybody? I mean, I know there's another... Uh, Jesus tells somewhat of a similar parable in Matthew with his, his destruction. You know, the king goes out and, and you know opens up a can, but it, this parable has a different folk eye for a different reason. And so why... What, what, is, what, what is going on with this? What, what is this? Okay, so he's really angry. He becomes very angry and he says, quickly, go into the streets and invite the blind, the cripples, the lame, the beggars. 
What, what, what's going on here? Yes. I, I'm just curious as to what his purpose is for this dinner, mm-hmm. because people are blowing him off, and I'm wondering why. It's, is it because of his personality? No, I think people send to blow Jesus off because they, like so many people, make decisions based on uh, the, the group that they're in and the crowd that they're in. It's not that difficult to see. Even if you look in our Christian churches and you look at... Uh, there are people that do things that the church is doing or that certain groups within the church are doing that they've really never given much thought to. But it's just something that the leaders are doing or others are doing. Or other. And so there's not a lot of... I don't think there's a whole lot of... Sometimes in churches, and certainly we see it here, there's a whole lot of real introspection and a real thought as to what do the Scriptures teach and what's going on. And so that's why I think Jesus was in there to rescue people, to give the grace of God, to tell about the kingdom, to tell about the gospel, to call people to repentance. And I think that a lot of times what Jesus was doing in those groups where he knew he was despised was looking for the one. Oh, did you have a hand, Susan? Yeah. Yeah. And to kind of go along with that, uh, he invited people that, at least in their own minds, were qualified to attend mm-hmm. and refused. And so now, with this, what he's now doing, I think, is saying to these, as an example, these people, the crippled, the blind, and the lame, are more qualified. He's he's raising their qualification mm-hmm. level to be invited to this feast, whereas they weren't invited first. But so the people that didn't want to mm-hmm. go, okay, guys, see you later. Yep. These other people are now invited, and I'm going to treat them like I would have treated mm-hmm. you. Interesting, right? What does verse 13 say again? Yes, Kelly. Well, I'm taking a righteous anger. Mm-hmm. Anger is the motivator. It causes us to act. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't mean that he's angry at the people, per se. Mm-hmm. He's angry at the situation. Mm-hmm. I think there's uh, I think there's the possibility that he is that that's true. I think you're, that's a good definition of anger. That's a good use of anger. Um, yes, I, I think because we've seen so much of Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees, as much as it's true sometimes that we also might see how that anger becomes an anger at the situation, like Jesus when he was at the tomb of Lazarus. Um, I, there are other times when Jesus is just outright angry with the Pharisees, you know. So maybe I'm thinking also that. Uh, God, well, the, the uh, banquet holder uh, is inviting the infirmed of physical or financial, but because the infirmed of the heart refused him, mm-hmm. re- rejected him. Mm-hmm. So those who are infirmed with the heart, mm-hmm. they said no. They were they were actually invited first, mm-hmm. but the infirmed physically, financially, the the well, there's definitely spiritual. There's definitely. I mean, it's a parable, so obviously there's a lot of illusion and metaphor going on. Hmm. Do you think this is just a bigger picture between the Jews and the Gentiles? Yeah, I think we're getting to that. I am getting to that. I, I do think that has a lot to do with it as well. But it's interesting too. I think it goes even beyond that. There's an interesting insight that one uh, commentator brought to this, and he said that part of part of the theology of the cross is at this transformation of anger into grace. Part of the theology of the cross is that this transformation of anger into grace. And I thought that was very insightful. What, what is that? Does that mean anything to you? Does that? Does that? Does that? St- I read things like that, and they cause me to stop. And I hate it because they interrupt my reading. But it causes me to stop and think about what is this guy saying, you know? And then I end up writing that down and trying to study it later. But anyway, what does that mean? Well, or, or, part of the theology of the cross is that this transformation of anger into grace. Although I might change the word from transformation 
to intersection. You know, at the cross we see the intersection of anger and grace. You know? But, I think it will become a little bit clearer as we realize... Hello, Brother John and family. I only know you, so I, I don't know anyone else here. Hi. Hi. We're Luke 14. We're in the parable of the Great Banquet, Luke 14, verses 12 through 24, and we're just kind of taking a look at verse 21 right now, when those that had been invited to the banquet and accepted the invitation, but then made excuses when it was time to show up after all the preparation had been done, uh, and these terrible excuses they gave, and then the, 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 the master of the banquet got angry and he told the servant, go out and invite the lame, the crippled, the blind. Go, go back to verse 13. What does that say? What does that read, Mark Fuller? But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Mm. Although they cannot repay you, mm. you will be paid at the resurrection of the righteous. Mm. See, there's so much going on in this parable, you know. Yes, Maureen. I think these people had no intention of going to this thing. They were self-satisfied. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I ran into that this week last weekend at a graduation party family. And just, um, when my aunt you know, well, we have our thing, but it's the same. So we were in the driveway with other people. I wasn't about to start a big theological right. concern with her. But Good she, wisdom. But, but, but this here is self-satisfied. Yeah. I knew I was going to come. And I didn't have to say anything to her. Mm-hmm. She brought it up to me. Yep. And because she's self-satisfied with what she has. Yeah. And I can understand uh, the anger of the person. It, they're not coming, and their excuses prove that before they eat, when they first got the invitation, mm-hmm. they were self-satisfied. Mm-hmm. They had no intention of coming. Mm-hmm. They had no intention of coming because they feast all the time, probably. But he tells them to invite these people who will be so grateful. And what uh, I think you're, you're absolutely right, and, and I, as we'll see in a moment, I think absolutely surprised at all that they'd be invited. But what is? I mean, what could we look at as almost a couple thousand years of history that we could call the invitation? <laughs> because I, I do think each point in this parable, uh, you know, there are things in this parable where the, the main point is captured in some of the particulars. What, what is the invitation like? So, what, what what could we say the invitation is? And this, it's, a, it's an invitation to come and eat. Come. Yeah. And hasn't it always been that? But putting aside for a minute the mass confusion that can come between understanding the uh, relationship of the covenants and then the old covenant and the new covenant and the Mosaic law and the Davidic covenant and the Abrahamic covenant and the Noahic covenant and on and on and on and on, right? Because we don't have to be masters in covenants uh, or new covenant theology, although we should be masters each in new covenant theology. That's our goal. What is the invitation? And I think you're right. I think it's been going on since day one. It is God's just wanting to be at fellowship with His people. God's just desiring to be among His people. It's all about relationship. It's just about relating to His making Himself known and letting people enjoy knowing Him and one another the way He made us to be. That's that's the invitation that's gone on forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. What did uh, Christ say to the apostles when He first came across them? Come, follow me. Yep. Yeah, that's been the. I mean, that's been the message right along, brother. You got a thought? I think when Jesus said, uh, "If any man thirst, let him come yeah. to me and drink." Yeah. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden. I mean, that's, that's the invitation yes. of the gospel. Yes, it is. That sinners are bidden to come. Yes. But Jesus says, "You're not willing to come <coughs> to me that yeah, you might have life," and yeah. so on. And 
Yeah. Yeah. And that does remain such a great mystery in some ways to us, you know, how that could be. But I mean, we probably don't have to look too much further than our own lives. Uh, yes, Harrison. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that, again, Jesus had, had that angle on that parable for that particular audience at that particular time. And that's not in this parable, again, because, you know, as, as, we, uh, as we learn over time that the things that we see in the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are things that are being told and recalled uh, for, for different reasons and, and different emphases, empathy, emphasize. <laughs> so what's the plural of emphasis? <laughs> It's like people that say, I pray in Jesus' name. Well, the apostrophe comes after the S, the second S you have to put after. So some people say, in Jesus' name. Some people say, in Jesus' is his name. Yes. I'm thinking that you know, the, the, the call is a universal call. Uh-huh. And, and <coughs> to call the, the sick, mm-hmm. the ones that need Jesus, is the effectual call. Mm-hmm. I think that, the, I think that, I think that that might be true, but I don't think that Necessarily, that's coming through here. You know what I mean? I think that's a. I think this is a general call. Yeah. 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 It's a general call. yeah. Yes. I love the hymn that says, "Why was I made to hear Thy voice mm. and enter while there's room when thousands make a wretched choice would rather starve than come? Mm. Twas the same love that spread the feast that sweetly drew us in, else we had still refused to taste and perished in our sin." Into mm. which we could just say, you know. But for the grace of God, really, yikes! With a big yikes to that. Yes. It just strikes me that as we talk about the anger mm-hmm. of the um, master, master um, that anger, like God's anger in Romans one, is often shown in His withdrawing <coughs> of the invitation or His withdrawing of grace. Mm-hmm. So, as we look at like the anger of the master coming out here, mm-hmm. and then him going and inviting other people, that's mm-hmm. what it feels like. Yeah. I'm angry at you, and you're no longer going to receive an invitation. Mm. Yep, yep. And I think, I think that um, the other thing I think as I see this is, you know, back in verse 13 when Jesus said, "When you give a feast, invite the." I, I think here's another example of Jesus being amongst all these Pharisees, and even in any group of Pharisees, we knew there were the Nicodemuses, we knew there were the uh, Joseph of Arimatheas, and I bet you there were some others, and that most of them would not see themselves as poor, lame, crippled, blind, but some would. Some would, because tucked in every self-satisfied, smug group that they've got all the answers and everything else, there's always going to be a smattering of people that don't feel nearly as confident as the people around them, and that don't really have it all together, and that are pretending they have it all together, because they think that other people think they have to have it all together, right? And so, that would be like, 
even us, you know, for people who come into the church and smile every week, I can look out. I guarantee you not everything is great in your life, so-called, today, right? There are plenty of reasons why any one of us have something that's a burden on our heart and heavy on our hearts, but we'll smile and we'll say, great. What would we ever do if a person just started, broke down and started crying and said things are horrible? Well, I, I think in this church we'd surround that person like a, like a flock of seagulls on a pigeon at McDonald's. We'd just be <laughs> all over it, right? We would just be all over that person. Because that, that, this is a loving church, right? But that, that doesn't necessarily happen. All right, let's move on to 22. The servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and there is still room. Now, I'm just speculating here. Uh, why would the servant be... Okay, was he just letting the master know there's still room? You know, what do I do next? I like to think that he was excited. There's still room for more. You know, I don't know. I like to think that he was pretty cranked up about this. Yes. Yes. I think he's catching some of the master's zeal. You know what I mean? I think he's catching some of the excitement. I think he's part of what's going on. I think he's, you know, he's been serving the master for a while. And I think he's starting to share in, in, the, in the master's exuberance a little bit. I think. I hope. Certainly there's... Uh an echo of God's electing grace here mm-hmm. because he chose not many noble, not many wise, mm-hmm. not many mighty. Yeah. And from the standpoint that uh, he chose the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And by doing so, he chose to allow the blindness of men, even with an invitation, which is just an example of God's grace, mm-hmm. to, to, to have yeah. its full fruit, yeah. we could say, of yep. unbelief. Yeah where his election stands still as the, the magnificent grace that it is. Mm-hmm. That only by God's elected grace can man be saved because we all have excuses until the light of grace comes into our hearts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and there's, so many, there's so many people, again, that we live in a... Unfortunately, right, the world outside of Christ is the world, although I guess you know some religions will try to address this sort of thing, we're constantly caught in this. In this, I mean, this is this is the, the, you know Satan being the god of this age, and the way that we're all born enslaved to Satan. Okay, every one of us is born, really, in a certain sense, into the domain of darkness. We are. That's why we've been delivered from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the Son of His love, and we are born enslaved uh, to Satan because you know our first father Adam sold himself into that slavery. So yes, brother. A wonderful scene in the book of Acts. It sort of relates to what you're talking about. Mm. A bit. It says when the Jews were uh, gone out of the synagogue, the Gentiles uh, asked that these words would be preached to them mm-hmm. the next Sabbath. Mm-hmm. And when the whole congregation was broken up, many of the Jews followed Paul and Barnabas. And Paul and Barnabas spoke to them and persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. And the next Sabbath, day came almost the whole city mm-hmm. out to hear yep. the word of God. Yep. Imagine that. Well, it doesn't happen today. How exciting it is. Yep. <laughs> Imagine if that happened. A lot of them were coming out of curiosity, yep. but I think it was affecting people. Maybe you can remember when you first got saved, mm-hmm. people perked up. I can speak. Of, you know, oh, yeah, myself, man. You know, people like, oh, what happened to him? What happened to her? Mm-hmm. What's going on here? You know what I'm saying? It's mm-hmm. like, Wow, there must be something to this thing. Yeah, well, and of course, we have a... I try to find the parallels to our common Western experience and the, you know, 
the 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 the, the Mesopotamian experience, the ancient you know Near East of of you know thousands of years ago, and we're so far removed from one another that it's hard to find some common experience. I mean, we don't have a common thread running through our culture uh, where there's an expectation of some sort of a messianic thing. Okay, there's some sense of I think this existed at one time in our country. I don't think it was accurately informed. I, don't, I think it was zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. But I, I just don't think that we have that common thread anymore, even. you know, They heard about a crucified Messiah, and Paul was preaching all about him, all right, from the Old Testament. So within the, within the course of 30 or 40 years, they're talking about this Jesus earlier than that. This is earlier than that. The apostles are out there right away, right? They're talking about this Jesus who has been raised from the dead, who was known by some around Galilee, and, and they're coming to hear this. And they're starting to, who knows what was going on in the background? Maybe there was chatter. Why can't the Pharisees produce the body of Jesus? Well, I mean, if the Pharisees are telling us this didn't happen, why don't, why don't they find it? Where's his body then? I mean, there had to have been that question. People had to have asked that question. There had to have been a, a self righteous, pompous Pharisee said, Come on, I'm going to show you his decaying corpse right now. Let's go. And lead a and, and and have a modern day at time a Paul that drags a whole bunch of people to the tomb of Jesus and they open it up, and they had no problem violating their own law when it was convenient for them. But opening up the thing and said, "Go in there and take a look and take a whiff. There's your Messiah, right? That stuff had to have gone on. It had to have. So yeah, thrilling time. And um, I don't know how we sort of you know the church has to be that thrilled people, right? Because the Scripture says. Paul says he's going to come for those for those that marvel at him, those who long for his appearing, those who marvel. You know that's why we have to be a marveling people. Okay, so well, who are these people in verse twenty-three? The master said, "Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled." So focus for a minute on the highways and the hedges. Who are the highway and hedges people? Who are the highway and hedges people that day? First of all, who were they that day? Who are they today? Yeah, Mark, you had your hand up. Homeless. Yeah, yeah. In, in that day, they probably were homeless. In that day, right? Yeah. Yeah, people who hide. Yeah. From authority, from whatever. Yeah. In the shadows. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. I would say tax collectors, prostitutes, uh, people that had nothing to do with synagogue, people that had nothing, people who had no reason to believe that in any way such an invitation would be given to them. Okay, they would no way believe that an invitation would be given to them. That would shock them that they had been invited because everything they've been hearing from the Pharisees is, you know, you are altogether conceived in sin and you instruct us kind of attitude all the yeah. time. You know, so so. So constantly, and, and, and so here's a parallel, is the church the kind of body today, we're the body of Christ, that the people living on the edges would feel just shocked that we would love them. Right? Are we the kind of people that, the homosexual, the alcoholic, the drug addict, the, the, the thief, the one that abandoned his family, uh, the woman that's been with, you know, 50 men. The man that's been with 50 women, right, would think for a minute that they could be loved in the way they do because they don't think they can be loved. 
no matter how people live, if you, if you live in that way, we know how God designed human beings. If somebody's living in those circumstances, and there's no way they feel love and there's no way they're able to freely give love. This is, there's no way. So to be loved like that, right? And this is why the church has such, such a mission to love, right? And not to condemn, right? But, uh, this is why it's so difficult. As soon as people talk to uh, the subject, for example, of homosexuality comes up, right? Which has been such a... It's been a great... There's been a great trick of the enemy with this, okay? Because we know what God's vision for sexuality is. And we know also that... Christian, and the devil knows also there's a lot of Christians that have hopped on that and they have hammered that and they have hammered that. And it'd be hard-pressed to find a single homosexual that would be glad to know that they're in the presence of a Christian. Alright? So, I think there's something in there for us. I think there's something for all ages and for all times. So, yeah, these are the highways and the hedges, people. Um, how about this? Um, you know, in the book of Enoch, which is not scripture, of course, but in the book of Enoch, we read that uh, the Gentiles would be included in the banquet, but they would ultimately be destroyed by the angel of death. Because I think ultimately these people also represent the Gentiles, as was mentioned earlier. Okay? I think this represents the Gentiles as well as just the outcasts. And the, the, the Qumran community, who are they, by the way? The Qumran or the Qumran? Who are, they? who are those people? The Essenes. What are those people all about? Now, who are they? What they was their they stick? Believe, well, they don't believe in the resurrection. Separated. Yeah. Separated yeah. And when were they around? Anyone know the church history? I'm not quite sure what it is. I think when did, when did the, the, the Qumran community, the Essenes, they were around the 3rd century B.C. through the... I would say shortly before Christ's birth in that yeah. era. Yeah. yeah. Well, they, they believed that, and they were... They have... In fact, that's where we found the Dead Sea Scrolls, right? This thing's, that, that those communities... Just stuck all those parchments and clay jars and stuck in a cave. Had no idea that they were going to come out in 1947 by some little shepherd boy, and that thousands of years of integrity of Scripture would be thereby demonstrated. Praise God! Uh, they believed that the Gentiles uh, would not be included. Uh, and, and you ask yourself why? I mean, they had Isaiah, right? The passages we looked at Isaiah last week spoke about basically three classes of people that would be invited: Jews. Uh, uh, people that sort of were like the outcasts amongst Judaism and then, and then, and then the foreigner altogether. You know, remember the eunuch said, let not the eunuch say, I am dry wood, right? Let not this... We were looked at those passages in Isaiah. So they have Isaiah. I mean, the, the prince of prophets, right? In a sense, right? Although Ezekiel was too, but and so was Daniel and so was Micah. But you know what I mean? Isaiah's so big in the New Testament, Right? How is it that they could have all this information that God gave through His prophets, through His people, about a people that would be a people that are, weren't His people? How could they have all this and miss it? It's by revelation. Mm. Yeah, right. Revelation to the inner man, right? Right. Right. Yes. Yeah. And, 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 and yet they were acculturated in it as well. They were supposedly brought up in a culture of believing this, whereas so many now aren't. And weren't they, as, as uh, Marty said earlier, self-satisfied mm-hmm. in figuring they're at the top of the heap? Yep. They were reading only what applied to them, evidently. That was the only thing that was interesting then. Yes. What is it to compel? 
How do we... This verse was... By the way, this verse was used to justify the Spanish Inquisition. Okay? This was one of the verses used to justify the Spanish Inquisition, which was what? Not to be confused with Monty Python's hit him with the soft, soft pillows. Right? Who, who, who was... Who was the Spanish Inquisition? What was their shtick? What were they doing? And when were they? Yeah, it took place. It started earlier than that, but ultimately, yeah, 14s, 15s, 16s. It got, it eased up as time went on. It wasn't. I mean, it was. It was. It is perhaps one of the biggest black eyes in Christian. Assuming that there were some Christians involved, and I'm sure there must have been some, um, excluding probably the Pope at that time, but. Uh, because you know Ferdinand wanted to use the church to sort of get the power structure in place that he needed and all that but anyway they used this verse but how do we compel people living in the fringes why would they have to compel them why did he say go to the fringes the hedges and the highways and compel them to come and I think I already said why I think in a sense because yeah they would never believe it how could that possibly be and so our compulsion has to be when we come our compelling people has to be more than just although it does include sort of evangelism in the street because that's part of that love that's reaching out to them though they may not see it as love but there's a lot of ways that we that we got to love those that are outside of the body of Christ we need to think about how do I so if I'm thinking about how do I compel this God has me with some hedge people and some highway people and he probably does you too how do I compel them right and this is what you ask yourself I don't have the answer for you but how do I compel them but it has to be it has to be unconditional, loving, reaching out with the, with the goal of, of, of having people reconcile to God. We've got a ministry of reconciliation. How does that happen in our fields of, of influence, in our spheres of influence? And what does it mean symbolically to even attend the feast? What's this feast? What is this feast? I want to make sure we get... I'm going to, I'm going to just read something to you. I'm, not going to, I, I'm going to detract that question and not give you an opportunity to give me your input because I want to make sure we get through this by 10.25. But this uh, gentleman, Edward N. Kirk, years ago I was shopping at one of the homeschool conventions and there was this dealer in old books and I found this first print from 1856, Lectures on the Parables from some pastor down in New York somewhere. But he says, A feast is not a mere enjoyment of what is eaten and drunk. It's a fellowship of kindred spirits. Here is a glorious company. Whomsoever we leave behind, we come to the best society of earth and heaven, the elite of the universe, the princes and nobles of God's kingdom, the sages of the church, the heroes of God's wars, the architects of Zion, the fellowship of the martyrs, the apostles, the general assembly and church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven, the noblest, the loveliest spirits the world has ever seen, God's elect for whom angels and archangels have watched and fought. Yes, here is a holy company, and the king at the head of, is at the head of the feast. The music of the entertainment is performed by the harpers and singers of the eternal city. That's the banquet. It's happening now a little bit. We're sort of in the hors d'oeuvre stage, but the banquet is coming. And this is what we need to think of the banquet. Do we think of the banquet this way, right? This guy, this guy nailed it, didn't he? Do we see that? That's what we are. By God's grace, we're nobles of God's kingdoms, the sages of the church, the heroes of God's wars. Wow. Ah, it's good to get excited like that, like this gentleman did. So God wants His house filled. He says, "Come on, my house to be filled. I want, I want to be surrounded by people. I want to love. I want people to love me. I want people to love each other. I, I want this love to happen. God is love. 
Perfect love casts out fear. So this is a that's why I guess why they had agape feast, these love feasts that they had in the early church. These love banquets, you know. These were somewhat of a foretaste of glory divine. Revelation twenty one twenty four says That's right. And the nations shall walk by its light, and the kings of the earth shall bring their glory into it. Mm. I believe that's connected also to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Yes. Nations are seen as the Gentiles bringing in their that's right. the glory of Christ within them to the, the, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And, and it's that, that uh, the commentary from that pastor is the, the idea of this fellowship that God so desires. Amen, he does. The nations. That's all God's always been pursuing, pursuing, pursuing. Just just pursuing, just saying, come to my love. Yes? No, I never really came across a loving church until I met Sovereign Grace Chapel in Jamaica. And it just stirred my heart so much so. The, the love that was shown, I never saw that kind of love in a church. Mm. And... Uh, it was really a no-brainer that God led me here mm-hmm. because, you know, I was looking for that kind of love mm-hmm. and didn't have it. And most of my life, there was a lot of anger issues. Mm-hmm. And love is the opposite of anger. And when you see it and you want to be a part of it, uh, you know, God gave me that gift mm-hmm. to come here. There was... Um Only because of love. Amen. No, it is a loving church. No question about it. I love you, Wally. Acts chapter, Acts chapter eighteen, verses five and six. We see, we see Jesus. We see the prophecy here. In a certain sense, what Jesus said was prophetic as well. Acts eighteen five and six. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to him, "Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles." This is part of what we see and go out there and invite the people that are living in the hedges and the highways and going out and inviting others because the ones that were first invited, the Jews, did not come to the feast. Acts chapter 20, verses 20 to 22. Another example of this. Yes, Acts chapter 20, verses 20 to 22. Um, That's not what I wanted. I don't think. No, it's not. Oh, well, whatever it was, it was a great verse. Let's go to Romans 10. Let's go to Romans 10. It's a great verse. I'm sorry I can't share it any longer. Romans chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, Israel, is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness for everyone who believes. Right? Uh, the man in... Um, let's go over to verse 19. But I asked, did, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. So, what we saw Jesus talking about is that that banquet taking place. God turns the table, in a sense, and makes the Jews angry. So they provoked God to anger. God in turn, and, and Paul said, look, the reason why this has happened has been to provoke Israel to jealousy. Right? I mean, this is interesting theology. We can't get into it. But God uses the Jews, or the Gentiles, 
just like he used the Jews, the Israels, to bring the oracles, the testimonies of God, he uses the Gentiles to provoke the Jews to jealousy. Interesting topic. That could be Sunday school lesson as well. What I want to talk about in our remaining seven or eight minutes is, although this is not the main focus of the parable, I think we can look at this and say, uh, or I should say this, the main focus of this is not about believers, but although we're not the main point, I think we can ask, what excuses do we make up for not showing up at the feast? The feast, because it is, there is, we always know this, there's a here and now, there's a now and later. As I said a few minutes ago, we're sort of in the hors d'oeuvre portion of the, of the great feast. But I think Christians have to ask, them, ask, them, ask themselves this question. What excuses do we make? So, what kinds of missed opportunities in ministry do we not participate in? And what kind of lame excuses do we offer thinking that, okay, so we've given ourselves an excuse, we'll pardon ourselves, but at the same time we think God is going to also buy this excuse. What might some of those things be? I know we all do them. Don't hide. Yeah. I'm just going to answer a question with a question. Why do some Christians think that it's not that important to feast with the saints or the feast of God? Yeah. Yeah. Why don't people understand? Yes, the importance of the fellowship of the saints, and it is because, and you know, this is this is again, this is what's behind our small group our, uh, movement that we have going in the church now. Is this very reason? And there will be people that for. And, and this is always, you know, grace is grace. And there are reasons why people won't be able to participate. So a variety of reasons, and there's a number of them that are legitimate. But I would, I would dare say, and, and say with the tone of appeal in my voice as well, that there are some that will find excuses for not participating in small groups. And they will be lame excuses. I, I don't say that to um, legalistically motivate anyone but only to take a look and say, you know, what? And, and it might be just like, a, as many things are, just a pattern of things in our lives. Other things that have become more important than they should have. And if this is an opportunity of grace that God has given us to see those things and say, I've got something better for you that will not only involve you and my people, but perhaps bring you the healing you need for the reason why you find yourself continuing to make excuses. So it's all... It's all part of the invitation. It's all part of the promise of God to continue to heal and to make you free. Christian growth does not happen outside of other Christians. I would, that is a hill I will die on. Because I think that the Scripture makes that hill. There is no such thing as a Christian that just sort of does it alone. It's impossible. We know this. You've heard it a million different ways and a million different times. But you will not confront the problems in your life you will not overcome the problems in your life. You will not grow spiritually if you are not around other people through whom the because we're a body through whom the grace of God is operative all the time. You cannot resolve your remaining sin problems alone. There is something in my life, something in your life. I'm sure if we looked, it is something that we would very well be brought out and exposed to the light of the gospel in the safe environment of loving Christians that understand the grace of God that none of us is perfect and that we all have something that we need the grace of God to help us sort of come through so that we can love God and one another better. What stops us from doing that? 
Yeah, fear is a huge one, right? Because we know that perfect love casts out fear. A few minutes ago, you said anger is the opposite of love. I think anger can actually be an expression of love. I understand your point and, and how different they are. I think fear is the opposite of love, more often than not. Yeah, fear. And, and, and how do we continue? How does the enemy continue to be successful in, in uh, uh, enhancing that fear? And we continue in that fear. I want you to, you know, I want me to ask yourselves these questions. And I want you to think about that with respect to, it may not be small groups, it could be missions work, it could be other ministry opportunities. And I'm not talking about, I'm talking about at work. What could I be doing differently at work? I already know. Something came to me, well, it was one of those two o'clock in the morning things. The same thing that Adam's responsibility was to guard the sacred space. All right, the garden's, in the ancient Near East thought the garden was the sacred space of God that was to be tended by the sort of the, the pre-priesthood. Mm-hmm. Adam had a function to guard that sacred space, to take dominion. And no, what that happened? A snake came in. A slithering, belly-crawling, tongue-spitting thing came in. And Adam fell to it. Right? We have to guard the sacred space at work, amongst our families. So, you need other Christian people to be able to find out those areas, to, to have victory. Paul said, we are more than conquerors. Right? We, not each individual. We, the church, uh, together, we are more than conquerors. So, I want you to think about, and maybe you're all considering small groups, maybe you don't have a reason, maybe you do have a reason, but I do want to invite you and encourage you to look at your reason and see if in that reason there's something that God might want to do wonderfully in your life and bless you and somebody else that might be sort of stuck in the same way. Because it's going to be awesome. I mean, it, it just is. Anytime you get together with the saints, it's going to be awesome. If we eat the dainties of the Word ourselves, what do you want to do? We want the other to eat the same dainties. Yeah. Alright, well, let's get excited to go upstairs and hear the Word of God preached. Amen? And uh, let's see. Can we, have, can we have Mr. Todd pray for us? fellowship of the saints because we are in fellowship with the Spirit of God in the midst of the saints. For two or three are gathered in thy name, you are in our midst. And we praise you, O Lord, for a God who certainly cares for us so much that he has saved the multitude and put us together in this, what is called a church. And that, O Lord, we would consider it as important as our own lives. That this would be, O Lord, our, our, our mission within life. To be a a, a light not only to the world but a light within the church so your name would be glorified and your love to be exemplified and our hearts would grow together so Lord for the service ahead oh Father of Heaven may you hear the, the voices of the saints uh, to the glory of your name and for the praise of the one who sits on the throne to the right side of the Father the Son of the living God in Christ's name Amen, Amen. Thank, you. thank you thank you brother